this, this morning we're going to continue to look at the institution of the Lord's Supper in Luke's Gospel, the passage we just read. Last week, we saw that the Supper is a feast. It's a feast of the coming future eschatological kingdom of God. Five times we saw Jesus mentions the kingdom and the coming judgment. Thus, at its heart, this is a sacrament which partakes of the end. right? And it borrows its glory from the coming wedding supper of the Lamb. How could it not? It is an initial kind of participation in that very feast. So the supper, rightly approached, creates eschatological people. It creates heavenly people. People who belong to the future. People who live out of the age to come. People who've been displaced from this age. People who are oriented toward and yearning for the coming feast. In the supper, we partake of the coming kingdom now. So it's not simply a feast. Nor is it simply about communion with Jesus. Neither is it merely about communion with Jesus and communion with one another. It is about reclining with Jesus face to face and with the patriarchs and the prophets and all the saints in the kingdom of God. And if that frame, and it's a frame, right? It's not just one feature of the supper. It's the frame of the supper. It's of its essence. If that drops out, the supper becomes all sorts of other pious things that might be noble, that might be good, individual things to bolster our piety or whatever. But it fundamentally becomes distorted because it's ripped out of its context. The main message of the Lord Jesus Christ preaching is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? And at the heart of this table which Jesus left us to remember him by, is eating and drinking at the feast of the kingdom. Now today, in verses 19 and 20, I want to look at the actual words of institution. And by that we mean the words Jesus said and the words that ministers repeat, acting in his name, over the bread and the wine. So we'll make three points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. Three points. Eucharist, bread and wine, and gospel. So first, then, Eucharist. Verse 19. He took bread, and when he had given thanks. Now, note, right, the word for giving thanks here is the Greek word from which we get the word Eucharist kind of transliterated into English. And thus, sometimes you might hear this word used. You may or may not. I think many of you are familiar with it, right? We'll call that the Eucharist. Eucharist simply means thanksgiving. So, in all three Gospels, right, where we have the institution of the Supper, we have Jesus blessing and giving thanks. And then when Paul... Paul reports the words of institution in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, the Lord Jesus gave thanks. So, in the the shadow of the terror of the cross, he stops and he gives thanks. 
Because that cross is going to be the way that the kingdom will come. Right? And expressing, expressing our gratitude to God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ is the very soul, right? It's the very lifeblood of this feast. Right? The very lifeblood of the supper is us expressing our gratitude to God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, not just the minister blesses it, we bless. In imitation of Jesus, we now bless the name of God. We give thanks. Our confession, the Westminster Confession, says that the supper is a spiritual oblation, meaning a spiritual sacrifice. A spiritual oblation of all possible praise to God. It's an offering, right? A spiritual offering of gratitude of all possible praise to God for his once-for-all offering up of himself in Jesus Christ. Some of you know the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a famous 16th century Reformed Catechism. It's broken into three parts. And the parts have traditionally been known as guilt, grace, and gratitude. So first, the catechism probes sin and the misery of man, his guilt. Then it moves on to the grace of God in Christ. And then finally, to the Christian life, which we are to live in gratitude in response to the gospel. It's a beautiful Shorthand way to remember the whole Christian story. Guilt, grace, gratitude. And at the heart of the supper's value for our spiritual growth is the fact that we are reminded, first, of our guilt. There's a bloody sacrifice on the table. But more so of God's grace in bearing our guilt and then of our need to offer up a spiritual oblation of the highest praise and gratitude to God. The whole Christian life is condensed into this. The supper brings us to the very heart of Christian existence, which is gratitude at the foot of the cross. Gratitude for the mercy of God. Gratitude for the atoning agony of our Savior which you can forget. This is why in our liturgy, in our service, there's a prayer of thanksgiving. A prayer of Eucharist immediately precedes the celebration of the supper. There's a long, long history of this in the Reformed churches and in the ancient church. There's a prayer of thanksgiving that immediately precedes the supper because... Gratitude is to be the atmosphere of the meal because gratitude is to be the atmosphere of the Christian life. So, how is your speech? Is it Eucharistic speech? What is the, what is the fruit of our lips? What is the moral state of our soul revealed by our mouths? Or our emailing and texting. Right? If it's too much grumbling and too much complaining and too much criticizing, if it's too earthly and horizontal, 
If it's too consumed with matters of the passing life, here's the remedy. This is the medicine. The Eucharist is given to create Eucharistic people. To assimilate us to the structure of the oblation. To make us living oblations of gratitude. To make us Eucharistic people. People whose speech is first and foremost vertical. Right? That's, that's the beautiful thing about Thanksgiving, right? I mean, yes, you can thank another person, of course. But Thanksgiving is generally a vertical kind of speech. You're giving thanks to God. Your speech is directed up above to the king and to the coming kingdom. Bless the name of God. Give thanks to him for his indescribable gift. The supper is given, then, among many other reasons, but a central reason is to refresh the roots of the tree of gratitude in your life. That's why the supper's here. So that's the Eucharist. The second thing, then, is the bread and the wine. So Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body. So he is taking the elements of a Passover meal, right? And by his word, his speech, he's giving them new meaning. It's important to get this. The sacraments are for us subordinate to, they are addendums to the word. They are appended to the word. There's nothing magic about the sacraments. They don't work automatically. They don't work independent of faith and repentance. We don't get more from the sacraments than we get from the gospel. The sacraments are crucial, but they are appended signs and seals of the word. But even at the table, and that, pass, that first Passover meal, it is Jesus' own word, his own speech, which makes the bread and the wine to be what they are. I mean, step back for a minute think about this. There's no intrinsic connection in the world between a piece of bread and Jesus' body. Just that there's no intrinsic, natural, obvious relation between wine and Jesus' shed blood. Right? It's Jesus' word which by its sovereign power gives the signs their meaning. It's his word which causes the sacrament to be a sacrament. I mean, after all, right? Jesus might have taken a piece of the actual Passover lamb and said, this is my body, and that might seem a little more apt to us. Maybe that's, that seems more fitting than the bread. But for whatever reason, he didn't do that. He took bread. And by his word, he declares this bread to be his body. So the word always towers over the sacrament. From the night Jesus instituted it, down through the church's history of embracing it. Now, as you know, there are a number of opinions as to what, if anything, happens to the bread and the wine as well in the supper. Right? Now, I do not want to rehearse this at length, but you can't have a series <laughs> on the Lord's Supper and not say a few words about it, a few things about it briefly. It's controverted territory, so I'll just give you guys the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so I'm going to simplify this, but it's going to be quick. On the one hand, there is the Catholic view, the Roman Catholic view, that the bread becomes the actual body of Christ and the wine becomes his actual blood. Right? This is known as transubstantiation. The substance of, a, of the bread, hidden from sight, becomes the substance of Christ's body. The outer appearance of the bread, which is known as its accidents, its outer features, let's just say, remains the same. At the other end of the, so that's one position, and at the other end of the spectrum are what we might call purely symbolic views. Nothing happens to the elements. They're just symbols to aid our memory of Jesus' death. Simply put, the Reformed reject both of these views, and I think rightly so. The sacraments are neither magic, they are not signs which literally become the thing, nor are they merely symbols or aids to memory. There are three Reformation convictions which are in play here, so let me give them to you. First is this, and this is a distinctively Reformed view. The sacraments are signs and seals of the covenant God has made with us. Now, I hope, Lord willing, to be able to unpack this further next week. But for now, notice this. The sacraments do signify they are signs, but they don't merely signify, right? They are signs and seals. So remember my sign... My Pittsburgh sign analogy from last week, right? There's the sign that says Pittsburgh 10 miles. Well, the analogy's not perfect. No analogy is, right? It, it, the sacraments are like a sign that says Pittsburgh 10 miles. So they signify. But they also somehow give you a little taste of Pittsburgh in advance. They seal Pittsburgh to you, right? They, they don't just point to Pittsburgh. They give you Pittsburgh in advance, right? They're signs and they're seals, So when we speak of them as seals, we mean they confirm, they strengthen, they reaffirm the realities of God's covenant with us, which we hear proclaimed in the word. So if you think of a paper on official city letterhead, right, and, you know, that's a good thing to have. If you need something official from the city, you get a letter from the city, but a paper with the official seal affixed to it, is even more certain, right? It's even more authentic. It's confirmed. So think of the sacraments, then, as little confirmation rites or rituals. If you want to know why the Reformed traditionally do not have confirmation, it's because that's confirmation. That's where our faith is confirmed and assured and sealed and reassured. So the sacraments are little confirmation rituals to reassure us, to seal our souls in the realities of God's covenant with us, proclaimed in the gospel. Something is really given to us there. Something is really confirmed to us in the sacraments, namely Christ and all of his benefits. Right? In this, the second conviction that's underlying this is the fact that in a sacrament, the sign points to the thing. There's a real relationship, a spiritual relation between the sign, in this case, let's say bread, and the thing, 
the body of Christ. But Jesus is not just playing with us here or pretending when he gives us the sacrament. He is giving us his body under the sign of bread. He's really giving us his body. And what this means is that the name of the thing is applied to the sign. This is why we hold up the bread and we say the body of Christ. The name of the thing, Jesus' body, is applied to the sign, the bread. Right? The bread is called Christ's body. The wine is called his blood. The name of the thing is applied to the sign. But you don't need Aristotle to understand this. This is just Hebraic covenantal language. It doesn't mean the bread turns into the body. Now, our conviction here is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures, for example, in Hebraic thought. In the Old Testament, circumcision, which is a sign of the covenant with Abraham, is simply called the covenant. The name of the thing, the covenant, is given to the sign circumcision. You see that? Jesus, as a good first century Jew, is just doing that. So here's Genesis 17, which you heard read this morning. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Okay, what's the covenant? Every male among you shall be circumcised. But circumcision is not the covenant. It's the sign of the covenant. But the sign is called the thing. That's just the way biblical covenant language works. So, to recap, the sacraments signify and they seal the covenant. They really point to the thing, and the name of the thing is given to the sign. And this means we are really given the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament without the bread and wine turning into Christ's body and blood. Now, and here's the third conviction that underlies all of this. The question is, how do we affirm this? And the answer is, well, we don't actually know the mechanism. We affirm that the mysterious power of the Holy Spirit does it. We are lifted up into heaven. This is why we have the sursum corda. You know that part? Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Sursum corda, just Latin for lift up your hearts. We have the sursum corda in our liturgy just prior to the prayer of thanksgiving. So there's a couple of real important things going on when we transition over here. One is, this, one is the sursum corda, which lifts you up to heaven. We are lifted up by the Spirit into heaven. And there we partake of Jesus Christ. Now, this is an astonishing claim. You know, when Calvin was involved in, the, in his polemics, uh, with the Catholic party at the Reformation, the charge would be, well, you Reformed don't have enough faith to believe in the miracle of transubstantiation. And Calvin would reply, do you think it's by physics that I learned that we're lifted up into heaven? You think that's not a miracle? Everybody's making astounding claims. We believe we're making an astounding claim rooted in the text of the New Testament. We are lifted up into heaven. Now, it is an astonishing thing to assert. It appears like we're all just sitting here. But it's, a, it's, basic, <coughs> excuse me, it's basic to the Christian conception of reality. 
Colossians 3, for example, we've been raised with Christ and our life and affections are above. Ephesians 2, we're raised up, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Hebrews 12, which was the New Testament lesson, says we've already come to the heavenly Zion. So by the Spirit, we are lifted up to heaven where Christ's actual body and blood remain. This is crucial, we think, because if Christ's body and blood are physically present everywhere the supper is celebrated, that is, if the bread and the wine somehow become Christ's body and blood, then Christ's humanity is no longer anything like our human nature. Right now he has a humanity which is present in multiple places at one time. He has a, what we would call a ubiquitous humanity. And then you've confused the two natures of Christ, and you've destroyed the integrity of his human nature. There's a lot at stake in this. So we're lifted up into heaven, and by the Spirit, where Christ's body remains, through faith, we feed on him. We eat and drink the virtue and power and life that flow to us from his humanity. We are perfectly happy to say we believe in the real presence of Christ in the supper, And we are perfectly happy to say we eat his flesh and we drink his blood. No one who reads John 6, which I hope to look at in a couple weeks, is going to want to not affirm that. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. We are lifted up and we eat and drink by faith through the spirit, the power and virtue of Jesus Christ that flows to us from his risen and transfigured humanity. And as surely then, as our eyes see and our bodies are nourished by the bread and the wine, so our souls, through faith, in a spiritual manner, not carnally, right? we're not actually chewing on Jesus' flesh, but through the Spirit, we feed upon, we, it is communicated to our souls Christ and all of his benefits, his body given, his blood poured out. It's a great mystery. It is rather to be adored than understood, but we have to bound it and say some things about it. That, in brief, is the reformed view of the body and the blood, of what transpires in the right reception of the sacrament. I wish I could make it simpler, but that's as simple as it gets. And hammering it out, by the way, was a crucial part of the Reformation. People think the Reformation was all about this doctrine or that doctrine or this doctrine or that doctrine, but it was largely about the purification of public worship. So this was an enormous matter. So finally, so that's the bread and the, uh, and the wine. Finally, the gospel. I don't, I don't want us um, to lose the forest for the trees here. So let's step back and note something crucial. We partake of resurrection life flowing from Christ's humanity under these forms of brokenness and weakness. Right, Broken bread, poured out wine. And notice on the bread, Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. That's just beautiful, right? The whole gospel is in those three words. Given for you. 
given as a sheer gift to you out of the inexhaustible love of God. And not just given, given for you. Right? The gospel is preached to you, and it speaks of Christ being given for you. Right? And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But in the supper, we might say we get Christ through the other senses. In the supper, you personally are fed. You take, you eat, you take, you drink. The fact that Christ died for you is intimately, physically eaten and drunk and assimilated into your soul by faith. There. The supper seals the gospel. It seals it as being the gospel for you. For you, for me. And the cross is the center of the gospel. Right? The body is given, given up into the hands of his enemies, yet freely given up for our sake. Notice also, notice also in these words, we're told that the blood is poured out for you. So as with the body, when you come to the table, you make the blood offering personally applicable to yourself and to your sins. It's poured out for you. And this language, of course, is violent language. It reminds us there was a violent death. That he was crucified in weakness. That he was unjustly executed. That blood was separated from the flesh. And thus there are two actions at the supper, not just one. It's as if God wants to say to us doubly, there was a violent execution at the center of your faith. There was, there was a body that was mangled. There was blood that was spilt. And we're not going to even collapse them together. We're going to have two separate little rituals to remember them both. So you get it better. There is no sign of resurrection on this table. I mean, the table itself is a sign that he's risen. But as far as the signs themselves, that's interesting, right? Jesus did not leave us a throne. He did not leave us symbols of earthly power. He did not leave us a victory march. He left us this, broken bread and poured out wine, a body given up into the hands of its enemies and blood spilled. So here's another big picture lesson. I hope to get to this later in the series, but we can, we can uh, have a bit of it now. Resurrection life in this age takes this cruciform shape. In the age to come, you won't have to deny yourself, take up your cross. But in this age, that's the way to power. That's the form of resurrection life, the way of the cross. Martyrdom is victory in this age. And so the supper, then, places us week after week at the epicenter at the place that we continually and kind of naturally drift from. Have you ever been to a Good Friday service? This is an aside, but if you've ever been to a Good Friday service and had the experience that I've had, which is, oh yeah, this is good. I tend to forget some of this. Right? You, you go to that Good Friday service and it's riveted on the cross and the majesty and the dread and the terror and the mystery and the glory of the whole thing, and you realize... Yeah, I just have a tendency to kind of slide from it, right? Well, the supper's a kind of Good Friday service every week. 
right? It's going to rip you and place you there, that place that we continually drift from and rebel against, the place where we are repulsed, the place where we are stripped naked and exposed, the place of darkness and dread and trembling, and thus the place of wonder and glory and gladness and light. It places you right there at the foot of the cross. That is one of its many immense benefits. Every week, the heart of the gospel, the still point of the turning world, the cross assumes center stage. I determined, Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I will make my boast in nothing except the cross of Christ, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. We are placed there every week. I mean, what else would the feast of the eschatological kingdom do if not place the gospel of the kingdom before our eyes? This, then, is a visible word. It is the gospel in another form, visual, tactile, touchable, tasteable. It is the word given a kind of flesh so that Christ can continue to correct us, cleanse us, comfort us. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do what? We proclaim. We preach. That is, we preach the Lord's death until he comes. Thus, right, this is the liquid and the edible gospel. So we give thanks, Eucharist, for the body and blood of Christ. For this is the drama of the gospel. And thus the drama of the Christian life, placed before our eyes, placed into our hands, placed into our mouths by the crucified and now risen host, originator of the meal, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Amen.